But are you willing tonight to condemn white supremacists and militia groups and to say that they need to stand down and not add to the violence in a number of these cities, as we saw in Kenosha and as we've seen in Portland? Are you prepared to to specifically do it? I I would say almost everything I see is from the left wing, not from the right wing. So what are you you, you saying? I'm I'm willing to do anything. I want to see peace. Then do it, sir. Say it. Do it. Say it. Do you want to call them? What do you want to call them? Give me a name. Give me a white name. Supremacists and right like me to white Proud supremacists boys. and right Proud Proud boys. Stand back and stand by. This was said by Donald Trump at the presidential debate held on Tuesday, September 29th, 2020, after being given a softball question by moderator Chris Wallace of Fox News. How hard is it to condemn white supremacy? Given Trump's track record, perhaps this was a bit too difficult a task. But what is also concerning is what Trump said when asked if he would allow a peaceful transition of power should he lose. Will you urge your supporters to stay calm during this extended period, not to engage in any civil unrest? And will you pledge tonight that you will not declare victory until the election has been independently certified? President Trump, you I'm go first. I'm urging my supporters to go into the polls and watch very carefully because that's what has to happen. I am urging them to do it. As you know, today there was a big problem. In Philadelphia, they went in to watch. They were called poll watchers, a very safe, very nice thing. They were thrown out. They weren't allowed to watch. You know why? Because bad things happen in Philadelphia, bad things. And Are I you- am urging... I am urging my people. I hope it's going to be a fair election. If it's a fair You're election, I am 100 percent on board. But if I see tens of thousands of ballots being manipulated, I can't go along with that. On October 7th, during the vice presidential debate, when asked if he and Donald Trump would accept the results of the presidential election, should they lose? Vice President Mike Pence said this. Let me just say, I think we're going to win this election. President Trump and I are fighting every day in courthouses to prevent Joe Biden and Kamala Harris from changing the rules and creating this universal mail-in voting that will create a massive opportunity for voter fraud. And we have a free and fair election. Uh, We know we're going to have confidence in it. And I believe in all my heart that President Donald Trump's going to be reelected for four more years. And notice that neither Donald Trump nor Mike Pence answered the question. On October 8th, United States Senator Mike Lee of Utah, a Republican and Trump loyalist, tweeted, quote, Democracy isn't the objective. Liberty, peace, and prosperity are. We want the human condition to flourish. Ranked democracy can thwart that. End quote. Senator Lee's tweet reads like it's straight out of 1984. On the same day, the Detroit News reported the arrest of six men accused by the Federal Bureau of Investigation of orchestrating a plot to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Another seven men were charged by the state attorney general. These men are part of the Wolverine Watchmen, a right-wing militia group with ties to Boogaloo, a national right-wing extremist group. Right-wing white supremacist militia groups have been a powerful force in Michigan for decades, so their existence is well known to most Michiganders. And they are not even new to being in the spotlight because of domestic terrorism. Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bomber, and his accomplice, Harry Nichols, both attended meetings held by the Michigan militia before carrying out their terrorist attack on the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building on April 19, 1995, killing 168 people. Back in the early months of the coronavirus pandemic, when right-wing anti-lockdown protesters, along with white nationalist and alt-right extremist groups, such as the Proud Boys and Boogaloo, engaged in protests that included blocking hospitals, burning and hanging leaders in effigy, and converging on state capitals. And in the case of Michigan, busting through the doors with armed right-wing terrorists 
lining up in front of the governor's office. The president of the United States tweeted, quote, liberate Michigan, end quote. When terrorizing leaders, not for tyranny, but for doing their due diligence to protect the people during a deadly pandemic. What the hell did you think was going to happen? The 2020 presidential election is not a normal election. This is not an election between John Jackson and Jack Johnson. This is not an election that is simply about policy. It is, but there is more to it than policy differences. In real time, we are living through an authoritarian nationalist coup. We are losing our ability to choose our leaders. We are losing any pretense of a democracy. And if we don't come to grips with the reality of this situation, and if we fail to meet this moment, we will be out of time. I am your host, Jay Poole, and this is Potstirer Podcast. Welcome to Potstirer Podcast, where politics, religion, and history collide, and it's not always polite. A lot has been happening over the past few weeks that should leave us truly concerned for the fate of our democratic republic. Early voting is already happening in a number of states, and there are reports in places like Virginia of Trump supporters attempting to block early voting locations. Donald Trump has posted a lot of tweets warning of voter fraud, which is exceedingly rare, and most of the cases of intentional voter fraud have involved Republicans. But at the same time, Trump is sending absentee ballot applications to his supporters and has told his supporters in states such as North Carolina to vote twice. States run by the GOP have been working to invalidate registrations and ballots. Several states have voting machines connected to the internet, which can leave them open to vote manipulation by either foreign or domestic bad actors. And then there are a few stories I'm going to get into in a little more depth. Let's start with this. No justice for Breonna Taylor. A Kentucky grand jury failed to indict the police officers responsible for mowing an innocent woman down dead in her own home during an incident back in March. The only charge that will proceed against Louisville police is a wanton endangerment charge stemming from bullets flying into other apartment units. And there are currently allegations being made by two of the grand jurors that Kentucky's Attorney General, Daniel Cameron, has mischaracterized the state's presentation of their case to the grand jury, as well as its finding that the officers were justified in their actions, and that the grand jury was used as a shield to deflect responsibility from the unwillingness of the Commonwealth Attorney General to press charges against the officers. It's also important to note that Cameron did not recommend murder charges against the officers involved in the killing of Breonna Taylor and has publicly deflected responsibility by saying of the grand jury, quote, they're an independent body. If they wanted to make an assessment about different charges, they could have done that. End quote. In addition, he has filed a motion in court seeking to keep grand jurors from speaking out about their allegations publicly. Meanwhile, as Louisville and other cities and towns across the country are protesting the lack of justice in these cases where black men and women are murdered in cold blood by the police state, the Trump regime is doing all it can to stifle the First Amendment rights of these protesters who are attending protests that are mostly peaceful and where, generally speaking, if there is any violence at these protests, it's generally instigated by riot police, federal agents, and mercenaries, as well as other bad actors, rather than the protesters themselves. Shades of 1968. U.S. Attorney General Bill Barr threatening to go after protesters regardless of whether they are peaceful or violent. Donald Trump seeking to defund cities allowing protesting. You heard that right. 
defunding cities that follow the U.S. Constitution. And while Donald Trump is seeking to snuff out protests that seek to gain justice for Black Americans, he wants to end resistance to white supremacy by targeting the next generation. On the heels of the ban the regime has placed on racial sensitivity training for federal contractors, Donald Trump is seeking to ban critical race theory and punish schools that are teaching it, replacing it with patriotic teaching in the public classroom. What is critical race theory? To summarize, critical race theory is an academic approach to history in the social sciences that frames events of the past and present and the way our society is structured within the context of race, law, political, and social power. Critical race theory is within the umbrella of critical theory, which posits that social problems are rooted more in social structures and culture than individual failings. When Donald Trump attacks critical race theory, he is attacking the fact that racism in this country is fueled more by systemic and structural bias than individual deficiencies. In other words, instead of pointing to the fact that racist systems developed in our country as a legacy of chattel slavery, Native American genocide, Jim Crow segregation, among other discriminatory actions by governmental and non-governmental institutions against people of color with effects that last to this day, Donald Trump would rather it be taught that America was always great and that any racism in this country is due to the actions of a few mean white people. But it's not that bad, and people of color are using racism as a scapegoat for their own failings. And that inequality in America is the fault of black, indigenous, and brown people themselves. If their culture wasn't inferior, if they didn't make bad decisions, they wouldn't be disadvantaged. In other words, Donald Trump wants to teach your children white supremacy. And this should not be a surprise coming from a demagogue who has told his supporters at rallies that he is a nationalist, has criticized California sanctuary cities for their, quote, ridiculous, crime-infested, and breeding concept, end quote, and has lauded his supporters for their, quote, good genes, end quote. Donald Trump wants to treat our nation's schools as fascist re-education camps, keeping young people in schools from learning the truth of our country's history and the legacy of white supremacy in this country. He wants to indoctrinate our country's children and exchange the truth for a lie. Donald Trump calls critical race theory racist, but has given no coherent or factual reason why. He can't even tell us what critical race theory is. He merely uses it as a scary buzzword to gin up his supporters. Noting the gross and immoral history of racism in the United States is truth-telling, it's honesty, and to mandate that schools lie to students is brainwashing. Anti-racism is the real racism. Anti-fascism is the real fascism. Big Brother could only hope to aspire to that. To be candid, this issue is near and dear to my heart. As you probably know, I hold a PhD in political science from the University of Cincinnati. The theoretical framework used in my research included a specific offshoot of critical race theory. So I would venture to guess that this is more my wheelhouse than the president's. I have my doubts that most public schools teach critical race theory. Though I'm not a K-12 educator, nor do I have children of my own, so this is pure speculation on my part. This is just my own personal experience, but I didn't learn about critical race theory until at least college, perhaps even grad school. But it articulated a reality I had observed since I was a kid, but didn't have labels to describe what I was saying. That said, I can imagine that schools, especially in communities serving people of color, may be doing a somewhat better job than they did 20 or 30 years ago of teaching history that tells the stories of their ancestors, and not just a sanitized version of America 
that doesn't include their history. And perhaps they're getting a slightly better understanding in civics class as to why they might face challenges that other kids might not. When people know the truth, they are empowered. They are compelled to do something about it. And as the United States races toward the year 2045, the time when it's projected that white Americans will be a statistical minority, the pressure has mounted to provide more equal opportunity, equal treatment, and a better life for people of color than America has provided in the past. This change is what Donald Trump and his white nationalist advisors and loyal sycophants are afraid of. The 2020 general election is not simply about policy. It's about what kind of country we're going to be after November 3rd. As a progressive, do I recognize that Joe Biden has a problematic past and his policy positions are third-way centrist Republican-like positions that establishment Democrats have been running and mostly failing with the past 25 to 30 years? Yes. Would I have liked to see a more progressive candidate at the top of the bill that ran on policies such as universal health care, student loan forgiveness and government paid higher education, the Green New Deal, or other progressive reforms? Of course I do. And would I rather the Democratic Party come to the realization that they actually need their progressive wing and not take it for granted? Definitely. But this is not an election to pass up or even vote third party for president as a protest vote against the entire system. The caging and assaults of children and the forced sterilizations of women happening under this regime, the increasing willingness of the government to silence dissent, the rise of a rogue, unaccountable police state, and the comfort and support this regime gives to actual terrorists. When other countries do these things, we watch in horror. We need to use these same lenses to see what is happening here at home. If democracy matters there, it should matter here. And if we have a hope of making a real difference, even if that means ultimately abolishing the Electoral College or moving away from first-past-the-post, winner-take-all voting, which are the main reasons why our current system only supports two major parties. We need to give ourselves an opportunity to continue. We are not voting for two of the same people or between two suspiciously similar lists of policies. We are literally voting for whether or not we are going to have a democratic republic anymore. If authoritarianism is allowed a stronghold here, all the fist shaking and I told you so's we can muster at the Democratic National Committee will no longer matter. That said, by voting for Joe Biden, I am not making the argument that we should wait or that we should settle. No, I'm saying that while we may not get everything we want right at this moment, we should take action now and in the future, decisive calculated actions to achieve real substantive results. We need to take a page from the Christian right and strategize like we're playing chess. The Christian right, who are made up primarily of white evangelicals, have their right-wing messiah, have remolded the Republican Party into their own image, and now rule as a statistical minority with outsized power by working on this over several decades. They primaried establishment officials and won seats in local, state, and national races over time and gained influence within the party. They built up their think tanks, such as the Heritage Foundation, which connected to current and future leaders, pumping out both a comprehensive agenda and a pipeline of talent ready to take over government, so that by the time they got the leader they truly wanted in the nation's highest office, they were ready to take over completely and make the moves they had wanted to make ever since the 1970s. But Jay, did the Christian right really get what they wanted? They got in power. 
but they lost their soul. It's not worth it for us to lose our soul. I get the argument. I really do. But that presupposes that the Christian right had a soul to begin with. I think that many conservative evangelical Christians, including those who voted Republican confidently prior to 2016, truly struggle with the direction their leadership is telling them to move in politically and have fundamental issues with aligning with Donald Trump. But those are not the people I'm talking about. I'm mainly talking about evangelical leadership. That includes the most influential clergy, the televangelists, the megachurch pastors, the big money authors, the heads of denominations and church networks, the institutional leaders, the elders and deacons and board members, the big money contributors. And for that group, on the whole, this was never really about Christ. It was about absolute power. The Christian rights origins in the United States were never rooted in this sincere desire to save the unborn by any abortion or even in other hot button issues like same sex marriage. Prior to the mid 1950s, racial segregation of public schools was legal. This was the case in the South as well as in some states west of the Mississippi River that we don't think of as southern states, such as California and Kansas. In states and localities with segregated schools, white students were educated at different schools than children of color, usually black Americans, but Native Americans, Asian Americans, and Latino students were often separately educated from white students as well. And speaking of Kansas, Topeka, Kansas, was the setting of the landmark Brown versus Board of Education case in 1954. In that case, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that racially separate schools were inherently unequal. But a companion ruling in 1955 meant that desegregation was not immediate across the country. It rolled out slowly over a number of years with a lot of resistance. De jure segregation or segregation by law of public schools ended completely in the early 1970s. During the process of desegregating public schools, whites-only private schools popped up all around the South, run primarily by white evangelical churches and related organizations that white families could send their children to in order to avoid educating their children alongside black children and other children of color. These were called segregation academies. As private nonprofits under the umbrella of churches, these schools could exclude children of color legally and at the same time enjoy tax exempt status. But in 1970, President Richard Nixon ordered the Internal Revenue Service to issue a regulation preventing institutions that did not admit other races to enjoy tax-exempt status, nor would donations to these institutions qualify as tax-deductible. This regulation was later upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1983. The late Christian fundamentalist preacher Jerry Falwell, father of the disgraced Jr., began working with the late conservative activist and Heritage Foundation co-founder Paul Weirich in the 1970s to develop a nationwide political movement of white evangelicals that could be mobilized in favor of conservative causes. The issue of tax exemption for segregation academies was what brought evangelical leaders in the fold of what would later develop into the Christian right. Abortion was not an issue that particularly angered a lot of evangelicals at the time of Roe versus Wade the Supreme Court decision legalizing abortion. But the duo eventually settled on the abortion issue in the late 1970s in order to pull at the heartstrings of rank-and-file evangelicals across the country, not just in the South, who weren't compelled to join a movement overtly supporting segregation. The movement that eventually gave us Donald Trump, a complicit Republican Senate, a conservative majority on the U.S. Supreme Court, and a government sliding hard into authoritarianism was brought to us by a movement whose leaders initially organized 
for the purpose of maintaining white supremacy without sacrifice. Remember this, 40 years of calculated, deliberate action got them exactly what they dreamed of. United States Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died on September 18, 2020, from complications after a long battle with pancreatic cancer. In recent years, Justice Ginsburg has been viewed as a seasoned member of the court, having been a Supreme Court justice since 1993, who helped keep its four-justice liberal minority relevant. The loss of Justice Ginsburg is huge for America. It also couldn't have come at a worse time in relation to the 2020 general election. And even she knew that. According to Ginsburg's granddaughter, Clara Spira, the judge gave a deathbed request stating, quote, My most fervent wish is that I not be replaced until a new president is installed, end quote. Now, according to Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell in 2016, during the last election, after the death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, months before that election, the president should not install a new justice in the final year of their term. The president should allow the American people to decide via the election. Because of this, the Senate refused to hold hearings for Scalia's presumptive replacement, Merrick Garland, that was appointed by President Barack Obama. Now that the shoe is on the other foot, is McConnell holding to this supposed precedent? Of course not. Justice Ginsburg's body was barely in the ground before Donald Trump moved to nominate Amy Coney Barrett, a hardline conservative, to the U.S. Supreme Court. Barrett is an appeals court judge on the Seventh Circuit who was appointed to the role by Trump in 2017. Her experience includes having been a clerk for Justice Scalia, and she is a law professor at the University of Notre Dame. Barrett is known for her anti-abortion views, and her decisions affirming Trump's policies on immigration and her pro-Second Amendment positions mean that she would likely be a justice that is reliable when it comes to siding with the Trump regime and Republicans more generally. Democrats, obviously, have a problem with the Republicans essentially going back on their own argument four years ago, though it was clear even then that the GOP wasn't principled and isn't now. The Democratic Party's unwillingness to fight then, making the incorrect assumption that Hillary Clinton would win the election, has helped us along to this point, and one would think that due to that costly lesson, they would have since learned to adapt to the unprincipled and craven opposition they have and not the opponent in their imagination who cares about principles and integrity. But that's unlikely. But timing, or even that she's a Trump appointee, isn't the only problem with Amy Coney Barrett. Barrett, a Roman Catholic, is known to be affiliated with the People of Praise, an organization of ultra-conservative Christians mostly charismatic Catholics. While this group's membership are mostly Catholic, the organization is in no way affiliated with the Roman Catholic Church. People of Praise was founded in 1971 and is rooted in Pentecostalism, a charismatic movement within evangelical Christianity. And much of how they operate and what they believe in is reflective of the organization's evangelical roots. People of Praise runs a national network of private Christian schools, primarily serving middle and high school students, called the Trinity Schools. Additionally, their curriculum is used in 30 other schools, including not only private schools, but public charter schools. People of Praise is also involved in missions work in urban areas across the country. So they tick a lot of the evangelical boxes. Private Christian schools, which are almost always evangelical, and are different from Roman Catholic schools run by a local Catholic diocese, can be problematic because they have been used as a way for affluent white families to skirt racial integration, as we talked about earlier. In addition, they lack institutional accountability 
and can be centers of patriarchal and socially conservative indoctrination instead of places where children are able to learn critical thinking skills to live in a pluralist democratic society. And Christian missions can be problematic because of the tendency of missionaries to import not only their Christian beliefs, but their cultural baggage and foist that onto the groups targeted by these missions, which is why some of these urban missions are questionable. If you like a more flushed out discussion of my views regarding Christian missions or evangelical Christian schools, I invite you to check out episodes 42 and 45. Now, people of praise, like many conservative evangelical groups, hold anti-LGBTQ plus views and view marriage as only between a man and a woman. And within heterosexual marriage, this group would be classified as complementarian, leaning hard into patriarchal. I haven't seen any information about the group explicitly stating that men and women are unequal, per se, but they do believe that men are the heads of household and are the final arbiter in all matters. Even more troubling, the group reportedly believes that men are entitled to sex with their wives on demand, not respecting a woman's agency and right to her own body, which would be par for the course for an anti-abortion group. Supporters of Barrett's nomination are attempting to spin any discussion of her religious views and their impact on her jurisprudence as an attack on her as a Roman Catholic. But this argument is pretty disingenuous. Never mind that the Democrats have a Roman Catholic at the top of the ticket this year. This is not 1960, and Amy Coney Barrett is no John F. Kennedy. The America of 1960 was sectarian in the sense that there was still widespread anti-Catholic sentiment, and a lot of it was tied to immigration, as groups comprising some of the major waves of European immigration to the U.S. from the mid-1800s to the early 1900s, such as immigrants from Ireland and Italy, were Roman Catholic. Even significant numbers of immigrants from places like Germany and Poland were Catholic. I'm not going to argue that there aren't people today who are anti-Catholic. Pockets of conservative evangelical Protestants, particularly a number of Christian fundamentalists, don't believe that Roman Catholics are truly Christian. And they think that Catholics believe that the Pope and or the Virgin Mary are replacements for God, which is a gross misunderstanding of Roman Catholic doctrine. But when people are questioning Amy Coney Barrett's religious views, it's not the Catholicism, it's the conservative evangelicalism. When we talk about evangelicalism, we tend to view it as a branch of Protestantism, because it is in the sense that it's historically rooted in Protestantism, and most adherents are Protestants. But Catholics exist who could also be classified as evangelical. How is this possible? When you look at the long-storied history of the Roman Catholic Church, there have been a number of orders, movements, and offshoots that are diverse in how they view the world and how they view their place in it, and how they should respond to that world as Catholics. And so the idea of charismatic Catholics is nothing new, even outside of the people of praise. It is also important to understand that there are stances on social issues within the Roman Catholic Church that lead it to being pretty much split down the middle politically in the U.S. Over the past several decades, Roman Catholics have found common cause with evangelical Protestants on abortion and euthanasia. And more conservative Catholics have bristled at the efforts of Pope Francis to make some positive movement toward the LGBTQ plus community and to support policies towards poor and oppressed groups that would be characterized as liberal. And there are some Roman Catholic communities in the United States that rival the social conservatism of evangelical Protestant communities. It's like that in Cincinnati. I live in an area that is quite Catholic and also very politically conservative. The Venn diagram of Roman Catholic and staunch Republican Trump supporter would almost be a circle. 
But people of praise isn't simply a group of Catholics who fall into the conservative category. They're a group of practicing Roman Catholics who have developed a network that have taken some of the worst that evangelical Christianity has to offer. And because evangelicalism has been increasingly willing to not only engage the public sphere, but also willing to reject pluralism and reject free and fair representative democracy in favor of remaking government in its own Christian dominionist image to the detriment of those they consider outsiders. This is why Amy Coney Barrett's religious views and how they impact her judicial decision-making is fair game. It's not a personal, private matter. It will matter to all 330 million of us. Now, in the Republicans' haste to nominate Amy Coney Barrett, they chose to throw caution to the wind during a pandemic, a pandemic that has claimed the lives of 214,000 Americans and counting, or over 70 September 11th, and host an event at the White House announcing the nomination. While the September event was outside, most did not wear masks, and there was no social distancing. Barrett, for her part, had been recovering from a bout of COVID-19 that she contracted over the summer, and she may have been shedding the virus, but there's no way to know for sure if she was patient zero. But what we do know is that event is now being viewed by experts as a super spreader event, and several people who attended the event subsequently tested positive for the novel coronavirus. In the unmitigated disaster of a presidential debate held on September 29th, Donald Trump and his entourage, including First Lady Melania Trump and the adult Trump children, showed up late and did not get tested for the coronavirus. They claimed they always get tested, and Trump was allowed to participate in the debate without being tested. Based on what moderator Chris Wallace called the honor system. During that horror show, where there were repeated interruptions, primarily by Trump, and Trump was observed arguing with Wallace over the rules that his campaign agreed to. He also clowned Joe Biden for his decision to wear a mask when seen in public. Two days later, on Thursday, October 1st, it was announced that Donald Trump, as well as the First Lady, were diagnosed with the coronavirus. And by the next day, Trump was said to have symptoms of COVID-19 and was flown by helicopter to Walter Reed Medical Center. After three days in the hospital, where he was said to have been given several medications, including monoclonal antibodies and the antiviral drug remdesivir, both developed using stem cell lines derived from aborted fetal tissue, he left to go back to the White House. He took a photo op on the balcony outside the White House, unmasked, struggling to breathe, and appearing to wince in pain before going inside. This is where we were as of this recording. Because of the nature of this virus and what it does to people who are infected, there's a lot of up and down that happens with this virus. There is no telling where we'll be by the time this goes live. I don't find it fruitful to get into speculation as to whether or not the White House is being honest about the details of the infection or the illness. I know a lot of people aren't going to like what I have to say here but it is what it is. Donald Trump's actions in actively pushing measures that make America significantly worse for a lot of people, family separations, kids in cages, giving comfort to white supremacists and right-wing domestic terrorists, his unmitigated support for an unaccountable police state, the use of government agencies and federal contractors, mercenaries to stifle organized public dissent, and his downplaying and politicizing of COVID-19. His actions have led to a great deal of suffering, trauma, injury, and death. We should not be so quick to forget the lives of those he has adversely affected and the lives that have been lost by his actions and inaction simply because he is now ill from a disease whose seriousness he called a 
Democratic hoax just several months ago. I refuse to do that. We remember the victims of oppressive foreign regimes, and we should hold to the same standard here. And for that reason, I'm going to engage in my personal policy in regards to these kinds of issues. Health, life and death, stuff like that. If I can't say anything nice, I won't say anything at all, so I won't. I'm also not going to go much further into the medical speculation. We're not going to get the full truth. In legally speaking, beyond his COVID-19 diagnosis, which is a public health issue, Donald Trump has a right to privacy as it relates to his health. I'm not a physician, and therefore the medical details of his treatment are outside my sphere of expertise. I'll let the experts be experts and get into that. But here's what I do want to talk about in relation to this. I'm going to talk about the things I know about and stick to politics. We're going into a crucial election. And as I mentioned earlier, we're beyond policy for policy's sake. We're talking about democracy itself. On the ballot is an accelerated march into authoritarianism versus a reprieve that may at least allow us a little more time to get this great experiment right, or even at some point a revolution into a country that lifts up its people, regardless of where our ancestors came from, where we live, what we believe, who we love, anything that makes us different, and allows us all the opportunity to reach our potential and contribute. But what we need to understand is that on top of the ticket in both major parties are men in their 70s who are in the age group particularly vulnerable to COVID-19. While both men have access to top doctors and facilities that most of us may not, the nature of this illness is still unpredictable. And even for those who survive, there may be long-lasting effects, and we still don't know for sure the severity of long-term health effects of people who contract COVID-19 and survive. Donald Trump's COVID-19 diagnosis and illness remind us that we really don't know what the landscape will look like when we make it to November 3rd. While some Democrats, liberals, and progressives have engaged in varying degrees of schadenfreude, Trump's illness is not a good thing in any way, shape, or form. Besides the fact that Trump has family, including a teenage son, who surely care about what happens to him, and his illness means that others in his proximity including Secret Service agents, staffers, just normal people working around the White House, are being exposed to the virus, meaning more people may fall ill. This is not a good thing. There are three possible outcomes from Trump's illness, and that assumes that Joe Biden remains healthy. After all, Biden was likely exposed to the virus during the September 29th debate, and while he has so far tested negative, it can take a while for the virus to show up on tests, and some of the tests are more accurate than others. And with him being slightly older than Trump, this potential exposure is a legitimate concern. The first potential outcome is that Donald Trump recovers quickly, and he presents himself as back to full strength, which he will likely try to do if at all possible. Right now, he's trying to do that. And if he can make himself appear fine, he will likely do so, whether he is truly fine or not. Even during the course of this illness, even when he seemed to be in the worst of it, he had not shown any regard for the lives of others, and he has knowingly exposed people in his quest to exalt himself, such as his photo ops and video at Walter Reed. You don't think he set up all that camera equipment by himself, do you? and the ride he took to wave to his supporters outside the hospital, endangering the lives of the Secret Service agents in the car with them. So the hope some levels have that Trump's illness will make him empathetic to Americans who have suffered from COVID-19, yeah, that's probably not going to happen. What is more likely to happen in this scenario is that Trump will use his quick apparent recovery as proof that COVID-19 isn't so bad, it's like a flu or a cold, that those who died would have died anyway. So it is what it is, and he was right all along. 
This could galvanize his supporters, even those who might have been wavering, and they may redouble their efforts to get him reelected. The second potential outcome is that Donald Trump takes weeks, maybe even longer, to recover. Like I mentioned before, while he's trying to get back out here in the public, we don't know what track this virus will take ultimately. There is less than a month until the general election. If an extended recovery happens and we come close to an election, Trump could renew his rhetoric surrounding postponing the election. Instead of leaning on his lies aimed at undermining public confidence in vote by mail during a major pandemic, or even in addition to that, he may use this illness to push for a postponement of the election. While Election Day and the process surrounding presidential succession is hardwired into the U.S. Constitution, it should be clear to all of us at this point that the Constitution is only as powerful as the leadership in charge of abiding by it. If our government's leaders choose to ignore the Constitution, which they have for quite a while now, there is nothing in place to force the government to comply. So in the case of a protracted illness, Trump may be more likely to garner support in Congress for the postponement of the general election, perhaps indefinitely. Dictator Don might be closer than we think. Then there's the third potential outcome. Due to COVID-19, or complications thereof, the president doesn't make it to November 3rd. While Donald Trump is high risk due to his age and obesity, he is still more likely than not to survive it. But in the small percentage chance he doesn't, those who have been hoping for Trump's demise should probably stop now. Let's rewind to the early 1960s. John F. Kennedy was, for all intents and purposes, a middling president. Many Americans were excited for a young, apparently vigorous, photogenic president from New England with a very pretty family. And they were willing to overlook his Catholicism, which, as I mentioned earlier, was a major point of religious discrimination at the time, to vote him in. But in his time in office, adverse foreign policy events such as the failed Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba and the Cuban Missile Crisis, cast his effectiveness in doubt. His vice president, Lyndon B. Johnson, was a Southern Democrat from Texas who had been placed on a ticket to obtain votes from conservative Southerners, as well as due to his connections in Congress developed from years in the legislature. Basically, the appeal and attributes that Kennedy as a Northern centrist lacked. On November 2nd, 1963, just under a year before the 1964 general election, President John F. Kennedy is assassinated. Vice President Johnson is sworn in and becomes President Johnson and finishes out Kennedy's term. And during this term, lobbies to push through the 1964 Civil Rights Act on the strength of Kennedy's memory. Despite that Kennedy was less aggressive on civil rights while alive, it's hard to know if that's because his relative passivity on civil rights was a reflection of his genuine views or if he didn't have the support or enough time before his assassination to make it happen. Nevertheless, Johnson used Kennedy's memory to get things done and it helped him get elected in 1964 to the presidency in his own right. Let's fast forward to today. If Trump doesn't make it to November 3rd, we will have President Mike Pence going into Election Day. Unlike Trump, Pence has shown the ability to behave in a calm manner. This is even with his short but gross history of disastrous policies of his own as governor of Indiana, such as his choice to actively make an HIV outbreak in Indiana worse, and his refusal to provide needed funding to clean up the East Chicago environmental disaster. As vice president, Mike Pence has been the reliable, quiet number two to Trump, but has been in lockstep with Trump, such as Pence's anti-kneeling stunt during an Indianapolis Colts NFL football game. Like Lyndon Johnson, 
Mike Pence will have the credibility to carry the mantle for Donald Trump and carry it even further than what we can imagine right now. And is a political insider who can work within the Beltway in a way that Trump struggled to, at least in the beginning. Also, Mike Pence, unlike Donald Trump, is a true believer when it comes to his conservatism and has a great deal of support among evangelical Christians. That aspect of Pence may also lead many never-Trump Republicans, such as John Kasich, Christine Todd Whitman, and architects of the Lincoln Project, such as George Conway, and others, to leave the Biden train and support Pence. Mike Pence was always the insurance policy, and in the unlikely event the GOP needs to cash it in, this is going to be an intractable problem for Democrats. The DNC's bet on never-Trump Republicans will backfire, and even as Pence continues Trump-era policies that harm and kill many Americans, the Democrats won't have the leverage to make their opposition count. It's one thing to oppose someone who regularly behaves without decorum. It's another to oppose someone who behaves in a controlled, calm manner and makes evil sound reasonable. It'll be a lot easier than it is right now to characterize Democrats as unhinged. A President Mike Pence will be a nightmare for Democrats, and because he is just as anti-democratic as Trump, but more dogmatic, this scenario will only accelerate our slide into authoritarianism. So here's what I want to see. I want to see a Donald Trump that will live to see his defeat November 3rd, 2020. But make no mistake, even if Joe Biden wins this election, the nightmare is not over. This just means we have bought ourselves just a little more time. Don't waste it. We've got work to do. If you're registered to vote, make sure you vote. Go to vote.org, which is informative and nonpartisan, to learn more. There will be one more episode out before the election, so stay tuned for that. I'm also going to make a small announcement on that episode as well. So you'll definitely want to listen. Thank you very much for listening to Potstirer Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or your favorite podcast app. Go to potstirerpodcast.com slash download and you'll see the links. Subscribing gets you new episodes once they come out, so you don't have to keep checking to see when a new one will drop. If you enjoy the podcast, please give it five stars and leave a review. And Twitter is the place to be. So follow me there at PotstirrerCast. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free.